welcome to episode one of Eat, Race, Shower, Repeat. I'm Laura Winter, sports broadcaster, podcaster and cycling presenter. And I am Paul Foss, former professional cyclist for Bora Hansgrohe. This podcast will take you behind the scenes of one of the most successful World Tour cycling teams of them all, Bora Hansgrohe. We follow them as they take on the most emotionally and physically challenging bike races of them all, the Tour de France. Yes, we are working with team title sponsor Hansgrohe, one of the world's largest and most respected bathroom suppliers and manufacturers, featuring beautifully designed taps and showers of the highest quality, benefiting from the finest in German engineering. For four years now, Hansgrohe has been at the team side as a reliable partner and together we will bring you exclusive insight from the team. The riders, the mechanics, the sports directors, the coaches and more for a unique look at the most beautiful sport in the world. This episode will look at what it physically takes to ride the Tour de France, looking at the riders' nutrition, training and the run-up to cycling's premier Cooling three weeks stage race. Yes, we'll be chatting to nutritionist Robert Gorgas about what the riders eat and don't eat to make sure they are at fighting weight. And we will hear from Dan Lorang about the key aspects of training for the tour and how it prepares the riders to take on the various roles, especially with the added complications of the coronavirus pandemic. Yes, Paul, it's been a crazy year. Cycling is back with a bang and the Tour de France is fast approaching. Before we go into the specifics of the Bora Hansgrohe Tour team, how do you think the riders are generally feeling now they are back racing, given all that's happened this year? Yeah, I think it was a yeah an unusual year. I mean, the year started uh, in a normal manner, but then suddenly in March, uh, yeah, everything started and uh, races got uh, cancelled. And yeah, now the restart, uh, it's quite insane uh, because we have so many race days and so many races happening on on the same time. And uh, I mean, for a cycling fan, this is a uh, Massive overload, but also like pretty exciting uh, times, I think. Yeah, it is a complete overload for fans, let alone for the riders who've gone from zero to 100, it seems, and suddenly they're racing full gas. What do you think mentally and physically that's that's doing to their bodies in preparation for the tour? Different teams uh, handled it differently because like, you know, it depends on like the goals you have. Uh, if you want to go for the tour, then you have to train earlier during the lockdown. If you want to go for the Giro, you, you might start a bit later. But now like it's all so packed. I think it's yeah physically challenging and also like for the coaches and like the whole team, like just a new situation where no one really knows how to work with it 100% correctly because you never had that before and this, this short and tense season. So... Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm really curious what's going to happen uh, in the rest of the season. Yeah, it is going to be fascinating. But you've been speaking, haven't you, to the Bora Hansgera coach, right? Yeah, yeah. I spoke to Dan Lorang, the head of performance. Yeah, he explained a bit how the training during the lockdown was going. So in the first part, uh, it was more about nobody knows how things will go on. And uh, it was about finding some goals for, for the next week, so for, for the next month. And there I must say that the riders were really motivated by themselves. So they, they really love what they are doing. They love to ride their bike. They love to train. And they say, they say to themselves, okay, I, if I stop now my training or if I make it now a long, long rest, perhaps I'm not just losing this season, but also the next one because I cannot make this, this progress, this development step that they make year by year by doing the training. And that's why it was not so difficult to motivate them. For sure, you had some days where it rains outside and there are some intervals on the program 
where they call you and say, hey, can we skip this? And then at that moment, you say, yes, for sure. Just go easy or just take a day off. And then we, we change the plan. In this period, without wasting, it was not a problem to change the program. But in general, they work really well. They got a lot of motivation from themselves. And things got really easy when there was some kind of race schedule from the UCI. So when there was six, okay, in end of July, beginning of August, the race will start again. Then there was a clear focus. We had our first training camp already at the middle of June. And so bringing all the guys together, having this team atmosphere that really helps them to stay motivated. And it was also good that nobody could tell you how to deal with the situation. You talk to psychologists, you talk to different people, but there was no wrong or right. So that's why, that's also what the, what the riders knew. So they knew, okay, we, everybody now tries to do the best out of the situation. And everybody has to bring in his part to make the best out of it. And that worked quite well. What I want just to add is we had more video chats. So normally when we chat, even in the coach call, we make this without video. We just make a normal conference call. But in this time, we make all the calls with video, also with the riders. So just to have this kind of um, face-to-face contact, what was really helpful to get, um, yeah, to see the faces and to see the expressions and to see better what they feel. Uh, I always said to the riders that I think the big, the important point is how much mental energy it costs you to do this roller training. So when they cope well with it and they say, okay, it is how it is. I do three hours. It's like doing nearly four and a half hours outside. I'm fine with this every day. If they cope positive with this, then I think it's not so, such a problem. But if you have to convince yourself every day to jump on the roller and if every pedal revolution is some kind of yeah feels really hard then i think this costs you a lot of mental energy and perhaps this could also have an impact now in in this short but in intense race period it was great to hear there how dan said the team adapted and actually put the needs both mental and physical of the riders first how would you have felt as a rider in this situation knowing you've got to keep training because you can't afford to lose that much time but equally there's no end goal in sight. Yeah, mentally, it's like a pretty tough uh, ask. And uh, also like, I mean, in Germany, you are lucky you could train outside. But in other European countries, you had the proper lockdown where you had to use the turbo trainer. And as Dan said, it's, uh, it's also pretty challenging to ride all the time indoors on a turbo trainer. It's, it's not the same as outside. And also mentally for some riders, it's, it's just too, too hard to do it. And I mean, for me, from my own experience, if I will have been in that situation now, I don't know how I could have coped with it because I personally hate Turbo Trainer. And uh, so from that side, I'm, yeah, I can't really imagine how, how it is, but like this whole time was pretty difficult. And uh, I know a few pro athletes myself. And yeah, I mean, some of them used the time really well, spent more time with the family and uh, did, other, did other training. As Dan also mentioned, when a guy wanted to do different training that day, he was able to because there was no specific goal. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, for some it was tougher than for the others. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But it sounds as though the Bora team really managed to adapt and adapt well and with the riders in mind uh, because they are going to be racing the Tour de France and it is fast approaching. We'll just run down that Tour de France team for you, the Bora Hansgrohe selection. So Peter Sagan then, seven times winner of the green jersey. He is back in the team and going for his eighth 
green jersey. Emmanuel Buchmann, is, he was fourth last year and he'll be going for the yellow jersey. Gregor Muhlberger, he will also be there. Daniel Oss as well, supporting Peter Sagan. Maximilian Schachmann, Lucas Postelberger and a recent stage winner at the Dauphiné, Leonard Keimner, will be also completing the lineup. Paul, what do you make of the team, first of all? I mean, it's a pretty pretty strong team. You can clearly see like that guys like Peter Saga and Daniel Oss have to go to yeah, to win the Queen Jersey. And then uh, Emmanuel Buchmann is the sole leader for the GC. And yeah, he has a realistic chance uh, to finish on the podium. And um, yeah, the rest of the team is just dictated to, to support him. Lukas Pestelberger is there to be like, yeah, kind of a lead-out man for Peter Saga, but also being there like in the mountains for... Emmanuel Buchmann. So it's a pretty exciting team with a lot of talent. And I'm really looking forward to see them ride as a team. And it's a team as well with two very clear goals in mind, the yellow jersey and the green jersey. Split ambitions. How has that affected their training? I think it had a big impact in the lead up to the to the race. But we spoke also with that about Dan, how he prepared the riders towards the two goals. We will have two groups. The main group tried to go for the GC. So with four riders for this, and then we have Peter and we have with him uh, also Daniel Oss. And um, then we have Lukas Pustelberger, who is a little bit of a Twitter in post functions. <laughs> so those groups are doing different training, but um, in both groups, we are using altitude training to prepare the tour, to develop as good as possible the aerobic capacity in all of the athletes. And um, then also the race schedule is a little bit different. For example, Emmanuel, his first race is now at the Dauphiné. Peter already did some races with Strade, with Milan Sanremo, with Milan Queen. So uh, we have there a different approach. And uh, for the GC riders, it's important to be able to compete at a really high level during three weeks, uh, especially in the third week, to still mobilize a lot of energy for these uh, long mountain stages. And with with Peter, it's always about finding the balance, the balance between aerobic capacity, endurance, but still staying fast to win this the sprints, to win these stages. So that's it's not so easy to to find this right balance for uh, for the green jersey. But uh, he has a lot of experience uh, from the past years, and we think that even for him, it's important to build this endurance. And just before the tour, uh, working a little bit on the speed to give him the possibility to win the stages. But that's something what we are not really working with Emmanuel on the speed. We are working on the strength. We are working on some acceleration. So it sounds like all was very much on course for the team. And that was before, however, a dark weekend for Bora Hansgrohe. We saw Emmanuel Buchmann crash out of the Dauphiné. We saw... Gregor Mühlberger also crash out of the same race with Emmanuel and Maximilian Schachmann at Il Lombardia. He broke his collarbone after being hit by a car on the course. Paul, from personal experience as a former rider, unfortunately, I'm sure you have crashed a few times. How much will this have taken out of their bodies and how long will it take them to recover? Yeah, unfortunately, I crashed also a few times and... Um... It really depends uh, what injury they got, but uh, yeah, Maximilian Schachmann, broken collarbone. Yeah, it's maybe possible if they get a surgery done pretty quick that he's on the bike in maybe one week or two weeks. So it could be still possible to be at the tour for him. Uh, Emmanuel Buchmann, uh, I think he will recover, but certainly it's it's not good to like stop the Dauphiné two days to go. And uh, 
yeah he will miss these two hard days in the mountains which will have been like a key like a key day or key days for him to to get fit for the tour so yeah it will affect the tour uh, pretty sure but um, i think we have we have still a bit of time and we can just be um, yeah hopeful that they're they're fit at the start line yeah fingers crossed and sending our very best wishes to all of the riders who crashed um and hoping that they're going to be fit and ready and raring to go on the start line of the Tour de France. For those listening who maybe have never crashed at high speed on a bike or indeed even low speed on a bike, can you just put into words what it is like to actually lose skin on the road for that sort of the physical feeling? I've crashed a couple of times riding and it's been quite low speed, relatively low impact crashes. I've never really completely skinned myself on the road as you see these guys do. Uh, Just how much does it actually hurt and take out of you? Yeah, you just mentioned you crashed on like a low speed, but usually a low speed crash in like uh, in cycling is like a the crash with the most impact. Uh, so you you actually never really break bones while crashing on a high speed. You're just losing skin or <laughs> just skin. <laughs> but uh, yeah, everyone is uh, yeah reacting to it differently. I mean, for me. Once in the tour, I think a sixth stage, I broke my hand. So, and I've had to finish with a broken hand and a broken nose, which was possible. So, it always depends on like uh, what kind of bone you broke and how complicated it is. But yeah, it's it's yeah definitely not not a nice way to to finish a preparation. And um, we really have to see have to see how how it will be. But for example, Maximilian Schachmann, uh, when you saw the crash, he hit a car, which then. He slowed down and then hit with his shoulder the, the side of a car. So there's like a high impact kind of like low speed, when you want to say like that, uh, crash. And there usually you break something. And it's the same with uh, Imani Buchmann, who crashed like a fast descent into like a ditch, I think. And uh, there he, he lost a bit of skin, but luckily uh, nothing was broken. So sometimes the the fast, dangerous looking crashes are the ones who are not as impactful as the slow ones. Mentally, though, as well, crashing must be a dent to your confidence. I know it's part of cycling, and we know it happens, and riders get straight back on their bikes, race to the finish line. Like you just mentioned, even with broken bones and a broken nose, you manage still to get to the finish line. But mentally, not just in terms of fear and impulses and instincts on the bike, but also in terms of having that confidence in your form, will this have given the riders a bit of a knock? It can be, yeah. It it really depends how the crash happened. Uh, I mean that in that case with Buchmann, the crash happened in like a yeah, stupidly dangerous descent at the Dauphiné, which wasn't wet or anything. So he didn't crash at like a too high speed cornerings. It was more like a bad road surface and uh, yeah, just a dangerous descent. So he he might think, all right, yeah, it was not my fault and. This is just part of cycling. If he crashes in like a fast descent, he, he's cornering and then just like slipping, that might cost you a bit of um, confidence in the descent or in the future descents. So it's it's hard to say, but like for me, always like a crash definitely uh, impacted me uh, or impacted my confidence in the next races uh, regarding descents. And you had, yeah, you needed a bit of time to get the feeling back for, for the bike and also like how to descend properly and uh, to be comfortable at a high speed. I mean, even without crashes, doing like 80 k's or 90 k's an hour on like a road just as wide as a car, it's already without crashing quite uh, 
quite a big ask. Fine to me to be going that fast downhill. Uh, but we do wish the riders the very best of luck. We'll be looking a bit more in depth at the team for the Tour de France in episode two of this podcast. But we'll move on to talk about more of the technical aspects of bike racing and cycling training as well. And that's aerodynamics and wind tunnel testing, because there's a very important time trial in this year's Tour de France, just the one on the penultimate stage, which could really make all the difference, couldn't it, in this year's Tour? And definitely. And in the last years, you had uh, more kilometers on a charm trial bike, but this year is just one. But still, it's like, as you said, the penultimate day and, uh, you know, everything can change there. So in the lead up to the Tour, you, you definitely have to spend a lot of time on the TT bike. And it's just not the power because this modern days, almost every team is doing wind tunnel testing and, and general aero testing and working a lot with the equipment. Um, and therefore, Bora Hansko is doing the same. And we talked uh, about it with Dan as well. Uh, so for all GC uh, riders, we, uh, we start in, in the first training camp so, or even sometimes before. Last year, we went already in October to um, the wind tunnel. It's, uh, we specialize. Uh, if there's a new bike, for example, or trying to test some new position, it's always to find the right mixture between the right aerodynamics and the metabolic costs. So how much energy do you spend for a certain amount of watts in this position? And how much watts, watts do you save by, uh, by a better aerodynamic? Then the second step is to go on the track to test it there. We, in general, we do this during our first camp. And then you have a good setup already. And then with your GC riders, perhaps after the first month of training, you go again to the track if you want to make some adjustments. And then that's it. And then it's more about training the position, training to ride that bike also with, with high speed and with, yeah, with real intervals, not just going easy on the time trial bike, but really uh, on, on race speed. And to get used to this and as closer as the races are coming, the more time we spend on it, depending also on how much time trial you have in the race. I think in the tour this, this year, we just have one time trial. So that's why perhaps the focus is a different one than in, in other years. And then it's for sure you have riders who never see their TT bike, like, for example, Pascal or uh, Peter. They see it perhaps once when we fit it, but then it's... Uh, yeah, for them, um, if they don't have a big race where they use it, then they don't use it in training because it's not their favorite discipline. Then it makes not no big sense to put them. The because even if they go in a race, they generally go for saving energy, so they just go by an intensity that makes them that keeps them in the time limit, but uh, but it's not so fast. <laughs> That's very funny to hear that Peter Sagan and uh, doesn't touch his time trial bike <laughs> unless he absolutely has to. <laughs> But fascinating to hear how they've used wind tunnel testing, aerodynamics in their preparation for this year's race. It's not just that technical side of things, though, that the riders and the team and the coaches need to look at. It's also how the riders are fueling themselves and how they're getting nutrition and getting that right ahead of the Tour de France because this is a power to weight ratio sport and riders have got to be as strong and as light simultaneously as they possibly can be. Yeah, so one thing is uh, for sure to be ready for the race. Uh, what means for the GC riders also to have the right body weight, so the right rut per kilo ratio, what is always a hot topic with uh, the climbers. That is one point, but then also to be able to keep that weight over the three weeks because you have different things which are what could happen. It's really interesting that often riders take weight, even if they are expend a lot of energy but they take some rate because there's some fluid in your body or perhaps there's some some problems with your uh with digestion or whatever 
So that is a, the big goal to go to the Tour de France with the right weight and to keep it over three weeks. For this, you have to prepare your nutrition strategy. So you have to get used your body to use the carbohydrates, also to use a lot of carbohydrates during racing so that it's not some kind of shock for your body. And then in the race itself, really be focused on the nutrition. So not forgetting the feeding strategy to eat and drink the right stuff. We, we develop for every race day a feeding strategy. So how many bottles, how many gels, how many rice sticks, or how many energy you should take. Then also it's coming to the finish line, taking care about the recovery. What we are doing there, we have the, the, the physios there. We have always at the Grand Tour also a coach there who is taking care about this. So when the riders comes into the bus, that he's not eating some, some junk food because he's just hungry, but that he gets the right stuff. And then he comes to the hotel, he has his recovery, uh, I don't know, recovery boots or whatever. So every minute has to be as, as good planned as possible during three weeks. And we have a, our own chef with us. We have a kitchen truck. And the chef has the nutrition plan from our nutritionist where he sees day by day which kind of food he should serve and also the quantity for every rider. So we give them an advice about their quantity. At the moment, it's not that they get a fixed plate and that they should eat this and it's it's finished. It's not how we do it at the moment. We just give them some advice what could be the right amount and then yeah, checking body weight every day and yeah, checking also other parameters to see if the nutrition, for example, the hydration parameter to see if they drink enough, if they have enough electrolytes. This is all these things what we, what we are doing. What starts already in the first training camp, because there you have to test your nutrition, you have to get your body the products that you are using and uh, what stops at the end of the tour. So there are a lot of people involved because what we saw in the past is we can have really good uh, nutrition strategy, but to make them happen on the field, it's not so always easy to have the right bottles, the right bars at the right moment, at the right place for the right rider. It's sometimes more tricky than you expected in series. Yeah, that was fascinating to hear, certainly about the feeding strategy and how much goes in to making sure that on race day, the riders have got exactly the amount they need, not too much and not too little. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in the, in the back in the days, you know, like in the 90s, 80s, even early 2000s, most of the teams... Uh, didn't care that much about nutrition. You you got your plate of pasta or rice in the morning and that's it. And now it's so much more complicated. You you can't gain much more just through training. You know, you, you have to look at so many aspects, aerodynamics, nutrition, uh, physical condition. Uh, it's, it's much more to do now for a rider as well than just uh, wake up in the morning and uh, go out for a training ride. Yeah, we also spoke to team nutritionist Robert Gorgas in a bit more detail about what to expect in terms of nutrition for a race like the Tour de France. And what I found really interesting, and you'll hear it in just a minute, he said preparation for the Tour in terms of nutrition doesn't start two or three weeks before. It actually starts at the very beginning of the season. I wouldn't say there's like a specific preparation nutrition-wise for the Tour de France. I would more say that it starts already with the beginning of the season where we give out nutrition ideas around training and racing and basic strategies. The basic idea is we look at the, the rider's weight all year round and if the white is too high, what is normally the case after the break in November or December, then we make sure the nutrition quality is very high and the energy density of the foods is not too high. So by this, we can create a slight caloric deficit 
and more or less the riders start to like lose weight very gradually leading to the big races and a big mistake that we saw in the in the, in the past is that they only start focusing a lot about losing weight maybe in the last four or six weeks before the tour and this is not working anymore because you this is the phase where you need very specific training and you normally also race a lot and then it's almost too late to to lose the weight so a slight uh, energy deficit like starting more or less in november high nutritional quality and then the race weight should be like there already a few weeks before the Tour de France. Um, the second very important thing is that we we try to kind of teach the riders to fuel right during training and racing, um, meaning that they also need to train their gut, digesting uh, carbohydrates during high-intensity training or racing. And to be able to digest a higher amount of carbohydrates is very beneficial in a, a Grand Tour uh, stage race because the, the better you can replace energy during the race, the better you recover also after the race, the less huge amounts of food you need to take after the race. And this all helps in recovery for the next day. And it was great to hear him talk about weight management as well uh, and not putting too much pressure on the riders in terms of you can't eat this, you can't eat that. It's all sort of that slow, gradual build to make sure that they're at the right weight at the right time. Yeah, it's uh, it's just like a big master plan you need from the start. And uh, it's just fascinating how how structured the teams are now and uh, how much impact a diet can have and uh, how early you have to start really to lose weight and to get your body used to the high high intake of carbs you need on a race day. And uh, I mean, when I was a rider, we didn't think too much about it. Um, and those days is now like, pff, just such an important uh, point. Yeah, I was going to ask you as a rider, how did you feel about having to drop weight, about having to maintain a weight? How difficult was that for you? And how much thought actually went into what you were eating? It sounds like it's evolved even in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time uh, researching stuff and uh, looking into details and uh, trying to lose weight. Two times I have overdone it and uh, have been too light at the tour and then uh, couldn't, couldn't be on my top top level just through losing too much weight. It's a complicated task sometimes. You can't just say, oh, today I'm eating 2,000 calories uh, and burn 2,500. It's not that simple. It's much more complicated. And uh, I have learned a lot through the years, but I have done it all on my own. And now it's it's good that the teams have actually nutritionists who who make a plan together with the coaches and the doctors to have really like the, the perfect and most healthy way to to get lean and to get the body used to to the high intake. Yeah, because I think when you talk to your average person, the mere mortals, non-bike riders, or certainly not professional bike riders, um, we talk about calories and it's a simple sort of weight loss equals calories in versus calories out and being in that calorie deficit. How many calories do you think you would burn on a big day at the tour? I actually know that. It's like between oh, four and a half and five and a half thousand calories. Just a ridiculous number of calories, plus what you need to even survive and to live uh, and to fuel for the next day. I asked Robert 
what I thought would be quite a simple question, how many calories does a rider burn? And turns out there is not a straight answer, as he explains. It depends on a few factors. Um, I would say very important is, uh, number one is, of course, body weight and therefore uh, energy expenditure. So, of course, uh, Emu has a different energy expenditure as a sprinter because he has less muscle and just burns a little bit less energy. Um, then the second point is the role in the team. When you have a rider that has to ride a sprinter stage in the front of the bunch the whole day, he has a different energy expenditure than a rider that's just sitting in the bunch. And of course, number three is the intensity of the race. So some stages are just not as intense. Uh, sometimes riders just try to recover for the next day. Um, so it, like with everything, it depends. But roughly, I would say um, it could be somewhere with a very light rider in a sprinter stage like uh, Emo just sitting in the bunch the whole day and maybe only riding for four hours could be somewhere around 2,500 to 3,000 calories during the stage, plus 2,000 what he burns just to to live. Like the the day has 20 more hours, so he's, his metabolism is still working and he needs to recover. So it will be would be on a, in a very easy day, 4,500, maybe 5,000 calories. And on a very high-intensity day, where he's riding in the front of the race and there's a lot of climbing that's maybe a, a, a king stage or queen stage um, with a with, uh, few uh, like long uh, climbing uh, phases then uh, or with a few long climbing uh, stages, he would be somewhere up to maybe 7,000 kilocalories. And for a sprinter, it would be a little bit also depending on what he does in the race would be a little bit higher in the sprinter stage, also because of the, the higher muscle mass and the higher uh, energy demands also just to live, like after the stage, and could be almost even less during a, a mountainous stage because his intensity is not that high as, the, as, in, as riding in the front for a climber, for example. But it, I wouldn't say it differs too much. So maybe somewhere in between 4,500, 5,000 calories per day, up to maybe 7,500, 8,000 calories per day. Well, there we go. Um, that is how a bike rider prepares his body for the Tour de France. And that is it for this episode, which hopefully gave you an insight into how the very best bike riders in the world prepare for the sport's most grueling race, both mentally and physically. A big thank you to the Bora Hansgrohe team, nutritionist Robert Gorgas and coach Dan Larang as well, who are so generous with their insights. And a big thank you to you for listening. Please follow the team at the Tour de France on social media at Boa Hanskro on Twitter and keep up to date on the Hanskro channels at Hanskro as well. You can find me online too at PaulFoss86. And I'm there at Laura C. Winter. Got a question? Please get in touch and send them in. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode of Eat, Race, Shower, Repeat. And leave a review as well if you like what you're hearing. Next episode, we will be asking who are Boa Hanskro? 
We will explore the DNA of the World Tour team as well as analyzing the highly competitive Tour de France lineup and this team's strategy for the three-week stage race. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you then. Bye for now.